The following is a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, how you can support it, or applying to become a student, please visit www.gpts.edu. Hello and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. Today we are sitting down with Dr. Joseph Piper of Greenville Seminary. He's our president here, and he's going to be answering some of the questions that you, our listeners, have sent in to us. But before we do, I'm going to ask Dr. Piper to open us with a word of prayer and to share some exciting news in the lives of our graduates. Dr. Piper, please pray for us. Thank you, Zach. Let us pray. O merciful and great God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we bless you and praise your name, for indeed you are great and there is none like you in the heavens above or the earth or the sea. You alone are God, there is none other, incomparable, clothed in all majesty and splendor. We praise you that you're our God, that you've stooped unto us and you've said that you're our God and we are your people. And we thank you that you've given us your word and the spirit to open that word unto us. And we ask today, Lord, as we I deal with questions doctrinal and practical that your spirit will illumine our understanding and cause this time to be very profitable. Forgive us of our sins. Grant that we not grieve your spirit. And we ask these things for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. Well, Zach, I'm very excited. Two of our young men were ordained and installed this weekend. Chris Campbell, who is in the Reformed Church U.S. in Kansas City. I was already called. He started as an intern in that church, then was on the session, and was already called as their pastor before he graduated. And he was ordained yesterday, and Dr. Curto preached his ordination sermon. And then last night as well, I was up in the Sovereign Grace PCA Church in Charlotte, North Carolina, and had the privilege of preaching the ordination sermon for Rob Dykes. Um, And if you're in the Charlotte area, this is a remarkable church. It's a simple means of grace church, but it is absolutely fantastic. They've built a new building. The architecture is uh, excellent in almost all regards. And the preaching there, the church life is very good as well. The same is true for Christopher in Kansas City. If you don't know about it, we do uh, on our website have a travel directory because many of you, like me, have ended up in places and been surprised uh, unpleasantly so, by the worship where you visited a uh, supposedly Reformed church. So we've posted the travel directory. It's growing, and the churches that post on there are supposed to agree with us on the regular principle of worship. Now, there might be some that would sing psalms exclusively, but they all would be seeking to worship God according to His Word. So use that as you travel. It's a service that we at the seminary want to do for you. It was a big weekend for our graduates. In addition to those two ordination um, and installation services, we also had a particularization service uh, for the church of one of our graduates down in Royston, Virginia. Oh, that's right, Friday night, yes. Uh, Now Pastor Mike Myers of the OPC. Um, He's one of our graduates, uh, just welcomed a lot of brothers from across the presbytery and people from the community to celebrate the particularization of his church, which means they're no longer a mission work. They're now a, um, a congregation, I guess, in full standing with the Presbyterian of the Southeast. Own session, de- uh, elders, and yes, it's a good work. 
Seminary served that when it was early mission status before Mike went there as organizing pastor. Mm -hmm. So we are thankful for these things. Uh, This is exactly why Greenville Seminary exists. It's to see men go into the ministry, and it's to see uh, Reformed churches uh, both grow but also become established in new places. And uh, we're very thankful for the ministry that Christopher, Rob, Mike, and many other graduates are embarking upon or, or continuing in this in this hour so moving into our questions now we're going to start with a question from chad warner of greenville south carolina who asks what are the prophesying visions and dreams in acts chapter 2 verses 17 to 21 well you remember this is peter's uh, pentecost sermon Uh, they've been accused of being drunk he answers with this exposition from joel verse 15 these men are not drunk as you suppose for it's only the third hour of the day a bit of humor there But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. It shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams. So what do these things mean here? uh, Well, let me read on 21. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. I will great wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it should be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So what Peter is doing here is basically declaring that what they have experienced and seen is the outpouring of the promised Holy Spirit. Christ in his ascension received Uh, as his reward, um, the privilege to pour out his Spirit upon the church. In the Old Covenant, the Spirit was active in regenerating and sanctifying and giving gifts, but as the Spirit of Christ permanently indwelling people, that could not take place until after the resurrection. So what is Joel referring to? He's using figures of speech here to emphasize that every believer has the Holy Spirit. For you see, in the Old Testament, it was only particular people that had this special work of the Spirit. So you remember the story of Moses when God gave him the elders to assist in the ruling of the people. And two of the elders stayed in the camp while the others went out to Moses, and those that went out to Moses prophesied. Those that stayed in the camp also prophesied. And Joshua, jealous for Moses, said, well, should I tell him to stop? And you remember Moses' response, oh, that all of God's people were prophets. Now, why did they prophesy? They prophesied because they'd been given the Holy Spirit in a peculiar manner. And what, what Moses is saying there is, that, oh, that all of God's people had the Holy Spirit in this manner. So that is what happened now in the day of Pentecost. So that visions and dreams, etc., were merely signs of the Spirit's working. And thus, it wasn't a promise that every individual is going to have a charismatic gift, but every every individual is going to be charismatically anointed. They're going to be anointed by the Holy Spirit and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So that's what that passage means, and it's it's a great declaration what each of us has. When we're born again, the Holy Spirit indwells us permanently, and we thank God for that. And that really ties into our next question. Our next question comes from Silas Menezes of Recife, Brazil, and he asks, 
What is the priesthood of all believers described by Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5? He also asks, what resources, books, articles, lectures, or sermons would you recommend to someone wanting to gain a better understanding of this doctrine? So in 1 Peter 2, Peter is talking about the church as the living temple of God. Verse 5, your living stones being built up into a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So this ties in to this permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. As an individual is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, one of the things that that is a sign of is his adoption. And as our confession says, that means he is in the number of and has all the privileges of the Son's of God. And one of the primary uh, benefits of adoption is bold access to God in prayer. In the Old Covenant, the primary way that one approached God in corporate worship was through the priest with the priestly prayers and the priestly sacrifices. Now, people still prayed uh, in in private and and on their own, but uh, there was this distance, so to speak, uh, with uh, the accomplishment of the work of Christ, who is himself the sacrifice and the sole priest, not in the order of Aaron, but in the order of Melchizedek, we learn now that Christ is praying for us on the basis of his sacrifice, but also we now have free access into the presence of God. And we come into God's presence boldly as Uh, children of God. And this is laid out so nicely in the larger catechism's exposition of the Lord's Prayer when it uh, uh, says about the preface, what does the preface of the Lord's Prayer teach us? The preface of the Lord's Prayer contained in these words, Our Father which art in heaven, teacheth us when we pray to draw near to God with confidence of His fatherly goodness and our interest there. So the priesthood of believers is primarily then this privilege of our adoption because Christ is our priest and intercessor and has completed the sacrifice that we need no earthly mediator, no earthly intercessor. We come directly to God with boldness and confidence as to a father. So we pray, our father who art in heaven. And uh, It's a glorious truth to realize, and when we struggle in prayer, to be mindful of the fact that we may come into the presence of God freely now as we rest in Christ. Now, what it doesn't mean to be the priesthood of believers, we're not talking about the prophecyhood of believers. So that when we read in the section in Joel that there'll be prophets and dream dreams and see visions, we're talking there, these are signs of having the Holy Spirit. But it doesn't mean everybody's a preacher. It doesn't mean everybody uh, is, uh, in a Quaker way, have a role in the in the teaching life of the church. No, priesthood of believers focuses entirely on our free access to God through the mediation of Christ. So it rules out all Roman Catholic mediation, saints, Mary, all of that, of needing any earthly uh, mediators to come uh, to Christ. Now. In terms of resources, I've done a little checking. Uh, Martin Luther has a book. It's Liberty of the Christian Man, I think is the exact title. Now, this is Christian, Christian Liberty. 
and that would be, I checked, it's in some of the collections of his works. Then uh, Dr. McGoldrick gave a lecture at our last conference conference on Lutherism, and that's going to be published next month in Banner of Truth, and he suggests that that would also be a helpful resource for you with regard to this. And then, of course, some of the more experimental systematics like a brockle uh, deals with um, the, the priesthood of, of believers. And then you could actually go on sermon audio and probably type in that topic and get some sermons as well. I can't guarantee they'll all be helpful or orthodox, but I'm sure you can you find trusted speakers there and uh, listen to those sermons as well. Thank you, Dr. Piper. Now, we're going to shift gears a little bit in terms of our questions, and uh, this one it deals specifically with a denominational controversy. This comes from Curtis Horstman of West Plains, Missouri, and Curtis asks, can you comment on the controversies of the PRCA slash CRC? I think that stands for Protestant Reformed Churches of America and the Christian Reformed Church in regard to common grace. Let me just uh, briefly do this, Curtis. The uh, Christian Reformed Church had a, a position come out, I think it was in the 30s, uh, and uh, it was a strong position following Kuiper on common grace. Now, common grace is understood is that uh, there's a general benevolence of God that uh, goes to unbelievers, uh, to the non-elect. And so Christ says that the sun shines on the just, the unjust, and God uh, gives many benefits. Um, the Protestant Reformed Church wants to reserve grace for only those benefits of uh, electing grace. And so they uh, were unwilling to apply the term common grace uh, to these general benefits. I'm sympathetic to that position. I prefer to talk about uh, God's general benevolence to uh, the uh, reprobate, the non-elect, although I wouldn't draw nearly as fierce a line in the sand as the Protestant Reform do with respect to those that would use that term. And the reason that you would be sympathetic to it, I suspect, is the same reason that I would be sympathetic to the Protestant Reformed Church's objection, and that is that grace that is doled out to the reprobate is really a condemning grace. Yeah, it they, really just and keeps they make coals that on point. That's good. Yes, thank you. Yeah, so that's a good question, Curtis, and certainly worthy of reflection upon, and we're going to move on to your second question. This again comes from Curtis Horseman of West Plains, Missouri. He asks, or comments and asks, I've read your book on the Lord's Day, and it changed the way I approached the Sabbath. What are your thoughts on a session that meets on Sundays after the worship service? And he adds a note, the session of our church has done this due to the fact that our congregation gathers together in a region with very few Reformed churches, and our members, including our elders, are spread out geographically with several members commuting to our church from over an hour away. We are working on church plants, by the way. Well, Curtis, I'm very sympathetic to the question as well as to the heart behind the question. I thank you for... Uh, seriously seeking God in the Lord's Day, and I know that you've already experienced the blessings of the Sabbath. I think that the work of the session is the work of the church. Uh, I don't know if I mentioned that explicitly session meetings. I do mention elders doing visitation on the Lord's Day when they don't have time of the days of the week or the church going out and doing evangelism in the park or going uh, door to door. 
I think in these situations where it's the best time for the elders to come together uh, for the oversight of the church, that it is not a violation of the Sabbath. If it's done merely for the convenience, they don't want to give a night during the week, I'd push back. They need to be as much as possible freed up to be uh, with their families. But in this situation, uh, I would say it's, it's a Sabbath work. It is promoting the cause of Christ. We could also say it's a deed of necessity as, as you explain it. Now, Dr. Piper, if, if a session does have to gather on a Sunday because of these geographic considerations, which makes a lot of sense, what then should they do to make provision for their families? Well, that's a good question as well, but it wouldn't be much different from um, they don't do it every week, they do it once a month. And it'd be no different than from somebody going to a nursing home on Sunday afternoon and going out and doing evangelism. Or what we as pastors, we have to draw aside for a while from our families in order to meditate and uh, review uh, to preach. So I, I think that uh, don't do it every week, but uh, do it, uh, you know, minimum, minimum, a maximum of once a month. And that's just part of Sabbath keeping. They can make other creative provisions. The families could come to the church since they travel so far and be together. Maybe do a video of a Bible, a good Bible video for the children or uh, have the live books available or somebody read to the children or whatever. And so there's other things they could be doing with their families jointly as the elders have to spend that time. Very good. Moving on to our next question. This comes from Shane Anderson. He's a ruling elder in an OPC church in Greensboro, North Carolina. And he writes, I've observed that many of today's Reformed preachers emphasize faith and love, but sometimes tend to neglect or even undermine the hope of God's people. We sometimes discourage the saints and undermine joy as we react against glib or false teaching. These are all observations of his. I have failed in this way, too, and see it as a subtle form of hyper-Calvinism. Do you agree? And how can we better encourage godly hope among God's people? Well, thank you, Shane. Uh, I do agree it's a problem. I haven't thought about it in terms of of, of hyper-Calvinism. Uh, uh, it perhaps leans over towards uh, a rigid... Um, formalistic approach to, to Christian living at times, not always. Uh, I think that uh, the hope of Christ in you, Christ in you, the hope of glory, is a very important element. And I think the primary way that we encourage that, and I seek to do this in my own preaching, is even if we have to deal with uh, an admonition and repentance so the love part of, of the necessity of loving God according to his commandments. I always like to come back to Christ and remind people that, uh, yes, we sin, and you've sinned in these areas, but remember that in Christ Jesus there is pardon. But then there's also power, and I like to talk about union with Christ and the power that raised Christ from the dead is the power that's operating in us. And so we have not only the hope of glory, we have the hope of immediate uh, work of Christ in his intercession and the work of his spirit within us. And so I think that that's how we can really promote uh, the hope of God's uh, people uh, in our preaching and, and keep it more balanced. Thank you for the question, Shane. It's a thoughtful question and one that not, had not occurred to me, but you're right. I've 
heard many more sermons on faith and love than I have on hope. Um, and we do have a blessed hope. Let me, yeah, in saying that, Zach, reminds me of another thing, and that is we don't hear enough sermons on either the resurrection or the second coming of Christ. And so, again, this is something that we need to get a better balance to our preaching. In, in, in terms as well, I don't believe in following the liturgical calendar, but sermons on the ascension and the session of Christ are all part of hope as well as as the second coming. Shane has a second question for us, and this deals with a, another matter entirely, but another one of uh, perennial importance, particularly today. He writes, a conservative theological book publisher is coming out with a book that promotes intimate spiritual friendships between men and women outside of marriage. Do you think that men need more friends who are women, or vice versa, that women need more friends who are men? Is this wise? Shane, Zach just brought this to my attention the other day. We were doing a trip together. No, I don't think it's wise. And I I could say that as one who has uh, erred in this area in the past. I think that uh, if I'm to have an intimate friendship with a woman, it must be as with my wife. It might be a single woman, but it must be my wife and I that have that friendship. And be the same then uh, with a man. So we, we're close to some students uh, who would be uh, single, and we treat a lot of them like Zach as sons. Uh, but uh, we're, we're well aware that um, that needs to be something that we do as couples. I think that uh, we're being foolish, particularly to use this word intimate uh, in terms of these one-on-one relationships, and we forget how uh, wily the evil one uh, really is. And if people, I think, practice this, I think we will have more uh, adulterous relationships. Now, Shane um, didn't name the book or the author uh, of the book that's about to come out. But I, you will. I, well, I think I know who he's talking about, but I'm not sure enough to name well, it on then. the air. So yeah. I'm not going to name name the author on the air. But if it is who I think it is, I have a great respect for the author, actually, and appreciate a lot of what this particular author puts out there. But that that phrase that Shane used of intimate um, spiritual friendships, I just can't conceive of actually investing the time and the energy and uh, and, and and the spiritual capital in an, a, an intimate spiritual relationship with another woman other than my wife. I am so busy with work and and church obligations and with raising my three children that I have precious little time to even spend with my wife one-on-one. How much less than would I have in spending spending time elsewhere? Right, and and each of us, as men, we need two or three good men friends, our wives to be our best friend, but two or three men friends, and our wives should have two or three women friends. that's important part, I think, of a, of a wholesome marriage, but not the, um, the heterosexual variety. I think we can learn a lot from our vice president, and I've not been as circumspect in the past, but I think he was exactly right when he has said that he will not have even a private dinner with a, uh, a woman without uh, another, a third person being involved in that dinner. Intimate relationship, friendship, implies doing things together. Now, maybe they just need to define their terms better, yeah. but until they do, it's a very dangerous uh, concept. And tell you what we will do, uh, Shane and other listeners, when we have verified, and, and Shane, if you can send it on to us 
the title of the book and the author, if it's whom we think it is, we'll, we'll look over that book and make further comment about it next month. Yeah, it would be interesting to see what nuances are placed on this kind of relationship. At this point, I'm just in the dark about what is meant. Shane, thank you for the questions, brother. Always appreciate it. Always very thoughtful. Our next question comes from Riley Frace of Denver, Colorado. Riley, if I mispronounce your last name, I apologize. Uh, How can we promote truth and at the same time promote greater unity among the various Reformed churches and denominations that exist today? I know this is an issue that's on your heart as you pursue encouraging churches to pray for revival in our land and to do so together. So I appreciate the question. Yes, I do too. I've always been one who's been keen on both Reformed ecumenicity, but even a broader ecumenicity. So I want to answer your question even a bit broader, if I might, Riley. In the first place, when I teach on this, I use concentric circles. And uh, the the farthest outside circles is what people have called co-belligerents. So this would not be the church, but as Christian individuals to be involved with uh, Roman Catholics or even Jews in uh, uh, some pro-life activity. In Mormons. Mormons. Now you're stretching me, Zach. But, uh, <laughs> um, but yes, co-belligerence, uh, that's, that's, that's the outest part level. Then the next circle would be with evangelicals. And this is particularly where we should be having prayer meetings for our city and nation and for the world. And as long as we all believe in salvation through Christ alone, we should be able to come together, promote uh, community prayer, uh, to sponsor prayer meetings, and even a shared worship service. Uh, When I pastored in a small town in Mississippi, we had three evangelical churches, a Methodist, a Baptist, and a Presbyterian. And on fifth Sundays, we had a joint worship service and the host of the service the previous quarter would preach the next time around, and we rotated that. Now, it was some pretty bad sermons. But on the other hand, it did express to a watching world um, that we have a common Savior. And then we took up an offering in that and had a diaconal fund that we used uh, for indigents who came through. We were on the railroad tracks. Those days there were still hobos um, Zach's laughing, but he's just too young. Anyway, so then the next circle, the third circle, more narrow, is the Reformed churches. So again, when I pastored in Houston, then we would do joint uh, evangelistic services or Bible conferences with Calvinistic Baptists. And if, uh, if a Baptist person brought uh, a friend to that service, they would take them home to their church. If one of the Presbyterians brought a friend, they'd take them home Uh, to their church if there was any kind of follow-up to be done. Uh, And so we could have joint theology and joint um, um, uh, evangelistic services. And in in situations like that, you respect uh, the integrity of what you're doing, and you don't go in and preach a sermon for or against uh, a mode of baptism or recipient of baptism. Same way that you might have uh, a, a congregation that sings psalms exclusively, and uh, another one that doesn't, well, we can have uh, a service together, and if they want to sing all psalms of that service, that's fine. Uh, if they're willing to sing some hymns and psalms, that's, that's fine as well. Um, uh, so we can do that. And, but then in terms of uh, real uh, joint efforts 
in terms of uh, church planting and things like that, then we stick uh, within a, an ecclesiastical fellowship. One of the things we have in the um, Reformed Presbyterian world is what's called NAPARC, North American Presbyterian, Presbyterian and Reformed Churches. And there's a large coalition. Uh, and it's a, just a joyful thing when it's used properly. Um, there's supposed to be a comedy agreement that you don't move in on somebody else's parish uh, as you're wanting to plant a church and things like that. So there's a lot that we could do and ought to be doing and I'm, I'm glad you're thinking this way. I hope this answer will help others to think this way as well. Thank you for the question, Riley. And I do pray that the Lord would bless your efforts to encourage revival prayer in, uh, among churches in our land today. Our next question comes from Mark Olivero of Greer, South Carolina. And he asks, what can we do in our churches to promote a more Trinitarian manner of worship? So often, evangelical worship sounds Unitarian by default. You're right on target, Mark. Thank you very much for the observation and uh, the question. I think there are a number of things that we can do um, with respect. Uh, One is uh, in our prayers, and particularly in that opening prayer of, I call it adoration and invocation. In our praying, we don't love God and praise God nearly enough. So I start there, and it's always a prayer that's addressed to uh, the triune God by name, Father, Son, and Spirit, sometimes even by their particular uh, parts of the unique work that each one does in the whole. Uh, and then it's often good to open a um, the hymn of praise and adoration. I know my friend Ian Hamilton tries to concentrate on having a, a hymn that is more overtly Trinitarian. But also we need to teach our people that when the name of God is used and one of the other persons is not mentioned, that is the triune God. And so part of it's a thought problem. Uh, And people don't realize how the Bible uses the name God. That wonderful quotation in Calvin where he quotes Gregory of Nazianzus, I cannot think of the one without quickly thinking of the three and of the three and the one. If we think that way, then we have to teach our people uh, to think that way. And then in the praying of the service, um, as we think of the role of the three persons of the Trinity. So, for example, uh, the the prayer of illumination, whose role is it to give illumination? It's the Spirit. Now, so often the prayer stops there. It should be a prayer for unction as well, which is another joint work of the Spirit with illumination as Christ, our prophet, speaks to us, and often put that together. May we hear Christ, prophet, priest, and king speaking to us now by the power of the Spirit through the Word. And so in our praying, uh, to be more distinctly Trinitarian as well. So praying and hymns in particular, I think, are the way that we can um, be more Trinitarian. And definitely dig into good Trinitarian resources. I mean, John Owen as a primary source, but also the many books that have been written based on John Owen's works are very helpful. Our own Dr. McGraw has a small book of uh, excerpted material from Owen's collected works. It's called, I think, uh, Communion with God. It's a small book put out by Reformation Heritage Books in their series of, um, of little semi-biographical um, and excerpted works. Uh, and little anthologies for different authors. So Dr. McGraw wrote his on Owen. That was very helpful to me 
for thinking through this issue of worshiping the triune God and not defaulting into that kind of evangelical Unitarianism, if you will. So thank you for the question, Mark. Greatly appreciate it. Moving on to the next question comes from around the world. Tendai Koza of Zimbabwe asks an eschatological question. He, re- he writes, I have read articles about some companies installing microchips in their employees with several explanations being given. Are we moving toward the mark of the beast described in Revelation? If a Christian employee is at such a company, what should they do? And just for reference's sake, I did pull up the passages that describe the mark of the beast and um, helps us understand where he's coming from. One is from Revelation 14, starting at verse 9. Then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And then the other uh, mention of it is in Revelation 19, starting at verse 20. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. We certainly have a lot you can unpack there for us, Dr. Piper. Um, what are these microchips about? Are they the mark of the beast? Tindai, let me say in the first place that it's not the mark of the beast in the two passages that Zach read. You notice it was a mark. It was a name, 666. There's a lot of discussion about that name. Um, probably the numeric quality of the name Nero, uh, but there are other suggestions as well. So it's more the way baptism is a mark on us. There's identification with the beast and the Antichrist in some external manner, and I think that's the mark of the beast. As to the chips, no. If I work for such a company, I'm afraid I'd have to lose my job. It's a bit sinister, and they've got nice reasons for it, for productivity and things like that. But first off, I wouldn't do that to my body. Uh, but but second off, I wouldn't do that to my freedom. Uh, and so uh, the Bible, you know, Paul says, for example, in 1 Corinthians 7, don't be enslaved. Don't put yourself into slavery. And this is surely a step into slavery to uh, to wear something like this. So it's not the mark of the beast, but I think it's very unwise. And I think it is destructive to your body. Um, I'm, yeah. I'm one. I mean, I have a lot of friends with tattoos, but the same logic that would prohibit me and my conscience from getting a tattoo, I would apply to this particular issue. Well, I just don't, and I don't see a need. Efficiency isn't worth it, honestly. To well, in fact, there's in. another area to go, but uh, our culture, particularly in the West, is way too sold out to efficiency. Uh, older Christians, uh, Dabney, others of the grand mentality, um, have pointed out that you know, there's more things to life than efficiency. And part of it's stopping to smell the flowers, to keep relationships. And so just think because things m- make work go better and makes it more productive, well, we can get overly productive and lose the essential important elements of life as well. So don't be duped by it. What's ironic is that the same, it's the same result, but you could see different impulses for it. You have a capitalistic impulse in this case, 
but the totalitarian socialistic impulse of control over life could result in the same thing. And so you see these extremes either direction resulting in putting microchips inside of you or whatever. But thank you for the question, Tendai. I, I hope that, you know, in Zimbabwe you're not dealing with that particular issue. Right but let, now. let us also caution our hearers if you walk around all the time with your GP te- GPS on your cell phone, it's not greatly different uh, because all kinds of people know where you are. Are you getting ready to take a trip and you tell us on Facebook, and so I've got a well-organized gang, and I see that you're going to be out of town next weekend. I might just visit your house. I think we're way, you know, we talk about this loss of privacy. Well, we're deliberately doing a lot of it to ourselves, and we need to become much more circumspect. Yeah, I'm very careful not to announce when I'm traveling, um, except to f- trusted friends. I don't, I don't generally blast those things on Facebook. Last thing I need is for somebody to visit my house while I'm away. And um, yeah. Anyway, we're going to move on to our next question. This comes from Joseph Lamar Brown of Savannah, Georgia, and uh, Joe asks: Due to the prevalence of unbiblical churches. Is there a way in which godly men can intentionally and kindly present pastors with a standard for doctrine? I know that even amongst true biblical evangelical churches, there remain some disagreements. Nevertheless, true churches will likely profess many of the same things. I recognize that there are evil people only pursuing ministry for personal gain, but I pity people who are perishing because of a lack of knowledge. Well, Joseph, and that's a great name. I can tell you you have to be from Savannah. Joseph Lamar Brown got a cadence to it. But Joseph, there's a very simple answer to your question. Go to a confessional church. We have a standard in confessional Presbyterianism that is uh, sound and by which you examine a man's uh, orthodoxy. And normally a Presbytery is supposed to uh, check that man out according to that standard as well. So it's one of the great advantages of having a creed and a confession. I was able to give a paper last weekend up at Liberty uh, University, which, by the way, there's some really wonderful things happening at Liberty University, and Zach and I were up there and just blessed by many of the people, a lot of Calvinistic, Baptist, and Reformed people on the faculty uh, there now. So, but I gave a paper on the biblical basis of creeds and confessions and the and their use, and of course, one of the primary things in a confession is it protects us from the eccentricities of a pastor. When these people say no creed but the Bible, well, every time a minister preaches, that's a creed. He's not just reading the Bible. He's telling you what he thinks the Bible means. And what a creed does is protect the congregation from his eccentricities or his errors. And so the best way is to find for yourself a good confessional church. If you want to uh, write Zach an email. There are two or three churches in the area that we're very high on. One's pastored by a graduate of ours, another very close friend of the seminary, another by that graduate's brother-in-law. So you've got good churches in the Savannah area, a good presbytery there. And so um, to use this resource that God's given you to guard yourself and guard the church. Well, let's hypothetically, uh, let's tease this out a little bit more, Dr. Piper. You're a man, you're in the middle of uh, flyover country, and you have two hours on either side of you to be able to go to a truly confessional church, but there's a well-meaning, sincere evangelical Baptist church right in town, or even evangelical Methodist church or something, and um, that's where you've been attending. You're coming under Reformed and confessional convictions 
What do you do? Well, I'm. Are you visiting? Or are you living there? You said you have two hours. No, no. It's that you're living there in the middle of flyover country, oh. in and you're right in the middle of a of a dead zone in terms of Nay Park or confessional churches. You got two hours on any side of you oh, to get to your oh, nearest oh, oh. confessional church. Well, in that case. Um, you go to the church that has the best textual preaching in worship, and then you take advantage of books and sermon audio uh, to uh, to supplement that, and then you get in touch with um, uh, either the PCA Presbytery or the OPC and say, we'd like to start a Bible study in order to start a church here. So there you go. You see, even if you're not in a place that's blessed with Reformed churches like Savannah, Georgia, or Greenville, South Carolina, or something, you have recourse and you have steps that you can take. So, And Joseph, if we've missed your question, it was a bit ambiguous to me. Please get back to us and we'll follow up with it. Yeah, absolutely. Next question comes from our friend Sam Frain of Chestertown, Maryland. And Sam asks, if someone asked you, Dr. Piper, why you believe the Bible is the Word of God, what would be your answer? And why do you believe the Scriptures are reliable? Thank you, Sam. And I haven't talked about the Confession. I will direct your attention to the first chapter of the Confession of Faith, which is one of the most profound statements on biblical authority uh, in one uh, succinct uh, paragraph. So in chapter 1, paragraphs 4 and 5, paragraph 4, the authority of the Holy Scripture for which it ought to be believed and obeyed dependeth not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof, and therefore is to be received because it is the Word of God. Now here the confession speaking against the claim of the Roman Catholic Church that it put together the Bible and it gave the Bible its authority. And they're saying, no, the Bible has authority because God is its author and it is to be received because it is the Word of God. So we go to paragraph 5. We may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church to a high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scripture. So the church doesn't give the Bible its authority, but the church testifies to the authority and divinity of the Bible. And that uh, is encouragement of people to come under it and to read it and to hear it preached. And the heaviness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, the many other incomparable excellencies and the entire perfection thereof are arguments whereby it doth abundantly evidence self to be the Word of God. Now you notice that all these arguments are internal. It's what the Bible is. The Bible is patently, self-evidently a unique book. And these various attributes that the confession applies to the Scripture uh, demonstrate that. But we come to the climax, yet notwithstanding our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness by and with the Word of God in our hearts. And here we get to the self-authenticating nature of the Bible. That it is when the Bible is read or preached and the Spirit illumines the understanding that the Spirit brings us to a conviction that this is the Word of God. Owen has a great piece on this and he says the Bible compares itself to two things, to power and to light. Neither one has to be defended, only used. 
So you tell a person who's not seen lights work off electricity, you know, these are lights, they'll lighten this room, and I don't believe that. So do you argue with them the powers of electricity and what light is? No, you turn on the light switch. Uh, the same with power. You don't have to defend power. You simply use it. And that's Owen's whole point. Because the Spirit takes this supernatural book and works in a supernatural way, we don't even have to be able to defend it. And so there are many Christians that can't defend it. But that's fine. Use it. Because it's what God uses. It is a sure sword sharper uh, than any t- physical two-edged sword, piercing to the very divisions of heart and and mind and and conscience. So uh, use it prayerfully, and it itself creates what we call general faith, and that general faith is what leads to saving faith. Thank you, Dr. Piper, and thank you for your question, Sam. And just a note to our listeners, Owen did not mention light switches or light bulbs <laughs> in his work. He's probably talking about candles and torches. All right, our next question comes from Trent Still. He's a student, and he's um, sending the question in from Springfield, South Carolina. Trent asks, were the American Presbyterians right to remove the designation of the office of the Pope as the Antichrist from the Westminster Confession of Faith? Well, a shout-out to Trent and his wife. They had a baby girl last Tuesday, and we thank the Lord for that safe delivery. Uh, Trent, I think they were, and I think they were on the basis of exegesis. So the definite article, the, is what created the problem for the American Presbyterians, because John's telling us that there were already Antichrist in his day. Those people in his day actually was describing those who had gone out from the church. They were denying the full humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ, the the uh, the nature of the two the two natures in, in the one person. Um, and so there were many Antichrist. And so the Pope, or the office of the papacy, I think, is an Antichrist. Now, there might be, 2 Thessalonians 2, an Antichrist at the end of the age. Uh, the word Antichrist is not used there to describe that person, but this man of wickedness. Um, but so... And there are some that think that this is the, the the papacy. I think the papacy is an antichrist, and I'd have been very happy if the Presbyterians had simply changed that designation. What we've lost with the correction, though, is that the Roman church is not a true church. It's a synagogue of Satan. That's not saying they're not Christians yet in the Roman church, but it's not a true church. It hasn't true sacraments. It doesn't have a true ministry. So though there's Christians... The of the church. So though there are Christians... In the Roman Catholic Church, the church as a whole, by its public right. official pronouncement. Right, is not yeah. a church. So, uh, yeah, the papacy as an office is wretched, and it seeks to usurp, uh, it does usurp the authority and power of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I, I agree with the, the, the editorial change. I just, they could have left it in uh, that the papacy is an expression of the Antichrist, and might be the man of sin or something like that. Thank you, Trent, for the question. I think we still have some time for a few more. Yep. So Trent sends a second question in. He says, do you understand the Westminster Standards to be compromised documents? And what are the implications of holding to this understanding for received ministers with whom we disagree, but who are still within the bounds of the standards? Well, this is quite a discussion that's going on, compromised documents, so at the Westminster Assembly, there were 
uh, within the Reformed community uh, two different uh, types of disagreements. There would be issues such as amillennial or postmillennial, or what we refer to as super or infralapsarian, which has to do with the order of the decrees. And we know that there were men who held to uh, either uh, position. And when these were intramural things uh, that are not clear violations of the Reformed faith, what the standards did was state things in such a way that either party could hold to it. So Twist, who was the moderator of the assembly, was was a superlapsarian, which means he, the first decree was election and then the decree of creation and the fall, whereas the majority of the members of the assembly were infralapsarian, that the order was um, creation, fall, election. Listen to my lecture in Christ and Salvation, and you'll see a third way. But anyway, um, and so it was phrased in a way that would not make it where either person uh, couldn't uh, hold to the standards. But then let's take it the issue of the covenant of infant baptism, our particular redemption. So these were also differences of opinion within the Reformed community. And there would have been minority people at the assembly that uh, could have taken the minority position on any of those things. But the standards do not compromise. The standards are quite clear on infant baptism, on particular redemption, those various issues like that. So, Or ecclesiology. What happened with ecclesiology is the, the parliament was, was uh, Erastian, which means they thought the church, the state had the final word. The Presbyterians wanted a Presbyterian government, and the uh, Congregationalists didn't want that. So the form of, of government is a compromised document, and it's very flawed. And thus, English Presbyterian has suffered, I think, greatly uh, because of that. The directory of worship is not as much compromised as that the congregations kept taking things out that should have been in. Uh, so uh, it is a useful uh, document for the church regulating its worship. But the form of government was a compromised document. But the confession of faith itself, in terms of allowing for really antithetical positions, some of which we would say are not part of Reformed orthodoxy. No, it was not. A, in my opinion, it was not a compromise document. So then what are the implications? Well, the trouble is in, in our Presbyterian denominations, now the Presbyterian Church in America has a procedure of how one receives the standards. And if one takes exceptions, then it has to be determined, is this against the fun, strikes against the fundamentals of the faith, or is it in between, or is it of no account whatsoever. And for me, that's absolute. Uh, the first two are absolute absurdity. The third would be what we would call scruples, that we would differ with the exegesis of different uh, text in the Scripture, uh, of the Confession, the way they put things, but uh, we would hold to the doctrine. But now we have men coming into uh, our denominations that can uh, reject uh, parts of the Sabbath, our uh, worship. These are the two areas in particular. But even, again, I've heard of churches that had ruling elders that didn't believe in infant baptism. And plenty of people don't believe in particular redemption. When we first formed, we had dispensationalists. So um, we're a mess. Now, in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, they have the 
uh, the commitment that they don't allow exceptions, but obviously they do have exceptions, and uh, they have pretty much this in the area of creation the same exceptions that we have in the PCA. Um, they're much sounder uh, on worship um, uh, than than we are, but probably on the Sabbath they would have not as many percentage wise, but they would also would have people that would differ from the standards as well. So. Um, I commend to people, uh, our adjunct professor and board member, Ian Hamilton, has a fine little book on subscription in the Scottish Presbyterian Church and what happened when the church uh, slackened its uh, uh, commitment to um, to subscription, which is the issue here. And if you write uh, Zach's email, he'll send you the uh, title of that book. We have other uh, resources here at the seminary as well by Dr. Smith and, and others on confessional subscription that I found to be helpful. Um, so we're going to take one more question, and this is from Zach Glover of Martinsburg, West Virginia. Hey, Zach, good name. How do you reconcile... I like the name Glover, too. Yeah, I, li- I like the whole name. How do you reconcile using a critical text translation while holding firm to the Westminster Confession of Faith, knowing that the proof texts contained in the Westminster Standards correspond to the traditional... TR, Texas Receptus text. Well, Zach, the, uh, the main thing is, is that we don't adopt the proof text. We're adopting the standards. The proof texts are there uh, to show us the scriptural authority. And I would say probably 999 times out of 1,000, wouldn't matter what translation you were using. Although there would be some exegetical problems with some of the proof texts as well. Uh, so what we really have in American Presbyterianism is uh, proof text that would be more consistent not with so much the text but with the proper interpretation of the text. So I don't think it matters whether you use the King James, New King James, ESV, New American Standard Bible, uh, New King James. Um, The proof texts are not going to vary greatly in terms of what they teach. If, If modern Presbyterians have thought that there's certain exegetical reasons, for example, the the proof text used in 1 John 5 on the Trinity is not in any Greek manuscript. It was invented by Erasmus, as best I remember, and placed in, uh, it was in the Vulgate, what it was, and, and, and Erasmus placed it in his uh, critical Greek text. So there's a, a case where the Textus Receptus actually is quite flawed. Now I hold to the majority text position, and and uh, there'd be differences in between the majority text and, and the TR. And you'll see that if you have a New King James Bible. It, it will tell you when the majority text differs uh, with the uh, with the traditional Textus Receptus. But no, I don't think we're adopting the, the proof text. And oftentimes the more modern proof texts are probably more useful. Thank you, Dr. Piper. And thank you, ZG, Zach Glover, for your question. I did want to just give a plug to all of the faculty travel that's going to be taking place um, this this month. If you live in the United States or Brazil, it's very likely that at some point a faculty member or a staff person of Greenville Seminary will be within striking distance of you. Dr. Piper thinks I'm funny because I said if you live in the United States or Brazil. 
But um, we have Both a lot. awfully big country. Yeah, yeah, right. They're huge. But we have a lot of travel going on. Dr. Shaw will be in Bartlesville, Oklahoma later this month. Dr. Piper is doing a Reformation conference here uh, right up the road in Spartanburg at the end of this month. Dr. McGraw right now is in Florida and will be in uh, and he's driving home from Florida. He'll be in Atlanta, Georgia this weekend with Dr. Wilborn. And um, and then there's other travel besides. I'll be in Atlanta next weekend for the Midway uh, Presbyterian Church's Reformation Worship Conference. We'll have a booth also at the Here We Stand Conference here in Greenville uh, when our friends are visiting us for that. And Dr. Morales will be in Escondido, California this week, delivering a convocation lecture at Westminster Seminary, California. Oh, man. We I'll have be in Brazil. I leave Wednesday night. I'm doing four conferences in Brazil. And then I get back on the 16th, and that next Saturday and Sunday, I'm doing a Reformation conference down in Fayetteville, North Carolina. Then the uh, one... On the 31st here in Spartanburg, and then the first weekend in November, Charlotte Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Uh, Zach's going to put all these in a new newsletter in the next week or so, and yep. so we'll have hard copies of that as well. And if we have your email address on file, we're going to try to notify you before our guys hit the ground. Um, if you live near these areas, targeted emails telling you, hey, Greenville Seminary is making a visit in one way, shape, or form, or one person or another in your area, uh, we'd love for you to come out and see them and say hello. As always, I thank you for tuning in to Faith and Practice. This has been an enjoyable session. Thank you, Dr. Piper, for sitting down with me for about an hour. Thank you, Zach. And we will see you all again next month. As far as the date is concerned, it's November 6th, and we will aim again for 2.30 p.m. to go live, and then I'll have it up and available for your review within a few days of that. So thank you again for joining us, and have a blessed week. Bye-bye. You've been listening to a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, please visit www.gpts.edu.